Well, good morning. Awesome. So this is, we are going to be wrapping up our series on James next week. Uh, but today, the passage that we're going to be looking at is one of my favorite. Uh, many of us have memorized James 5.16, right? The, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And, and what's fascinating about that verse and the ones around it is sometimes we memorize these verses, uh, but we don't always understand the full context and, and the depth of wisdom that surrounds that there. So that, that, that is what we're going to be looking at today uh, as we talk about prayer, as we talk about what this looks like in our life. All right? So let me, let me pray and we'll, we'll begin. Lord, thank you that you have been doing a work in our hearts before today, that you have brought us here today, that you are going to be sending us out here Lord, we just come before you and ask that you would do a work in our hearts. We come before you with our hands open wide, knowing that you say, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, I pray that through this message we would uh, experience intimacy and closeness and a depth of relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so when you think about prayer... Have you ever wondered when it's appropriate to pray? Right? So, so when, when is it appropriate to pray? Is it when, before you eat? Is, is that when we pray? Or at the end of a life group? Or, or before an offering? Or do you pray when everything's falling apart? When you don't know how you'll face another day? Or, or when trying to make decisions? Now, Lisa Turkhurst with Proverbs 31 Ministries has always been an encouragement to, uh, to me via my wife, and uh, Christina often sends me these devotionals, and I remember looking through my inbox this last week, and I, and I found one called The Waiting Game, uh, and um, she sent it to me a couple years ago, so I wanted to read it for you. Sometimes I see God answer my prayers right away. I'm excited, thankful, and ready to tell everyone about his goodness. Then there are those other times when my prayers linger and miracles seem far away. As time creeps on, my doubts creep in. I used to think waiting on God to answer my prayers was like playing a game. Who would last the longest? Would I continue to, uh, to ask, plead, and persevere? Or, or would I give up first because I was tired of waiting? Or maybe God would give me what I wanted because he was tired of hearing all my whining and complaining. Uh, and now this, I, I fully relate with this one. If my prayers were answered quickly, I'd give Jesus a quick spiritual high five. And shout hallelujah. Anyone who's done that before? Uh, and, then, and then you move on to your next request, right? <laughs> but if time went on and my miracle didn't show up, I'd get discouraged and frustrated. My waiting turned to worry. My perseverance shifted to pouting. Lord, why haven't you answered my prayers? What are you waiting for? Can't you see me struggling? You're taking too long and I just don't understand why. Now, I love how these devotionals are to the point and, and very relatable. And the reason I share that devotional is uh, because a couple months ago, Lisa Turkhurst, uh, she, uh, she has had such an impact on Christina's life, my life, and I, and I know many of yours as well through her Bible studies and what she's written and all that. And, and I, I guess you can probably imagine how devastated I was when I found out that she was uh, going to have a divorce with her husband. And when she announced that she was going to be pursuing this divorce, this is what she wrote on her blog. And, and I wanted to read this to you because it's, um, it's, it's related to this message, but it, it just shows you 
what prayer actually looks like, <laughs> right? The, the, the wrestling that happens when you're faced uh, with a difficult situation like this. A gut honest look at love. That was the title of my first blog post of this year. Based on 1 Corinthians 13, I wrote, love isn't what I have the opportunity to get from this world. Love is what I have the opportunity to give. This perspective on love has been a lifeline during the most painful season and decision of my adult life. I so wish we were sitting face to face so you could see my tears and hear the deep grief in my voice as I share this with you. My husband, life partner, and father of my children, Art Turkhurst, has been repeatedly unfaithful to me with a woman he met online bringing an end to our marriage of almost 25 years. For the past couple of years, his life has sadly been defined by his affection for this other woman and substance abuse. I don't share this to harm or embarrass him, but to help explain why I've decided to separate from him and pursue a divorce. God has now revealed to me that I've done all I can do and I must release him to the Savior. Anyone who knows me and Proverbs 31 Ministries knows how seriously I take marriage. I've always encouraged women to fight for their marriages and do, to do everything possible to save them when they come under threat. So for the past couple of years, I've been in the hardest battle of my life trying to save my marriage. When I first found out about Art's infidelity 18 months ago, I made the decision not to divorce him. I had just finished fasting and praying for 28 days and really felt led by the Lord that I was to love Art in my reaction to the shocking news and trust God for every step moving forward. I was still committed to doing everything I could think of to make our story one of restoration, even in the face of the worst kind of betrayal imaginable. I prayed continually. I sought counsel from family and other wise friends, and Art and I even made repeated trips across the country together for intensive counseling, especially designed for marriages in crisis. But sadly, though I have repeatedly forgiven and accepted him back, he has continued to abuse substances, be unfaithful, and refuse to be truthful to me and our family. I believe I have the capacity to love Art and to forgive him, but his steadfast refusal to end the infidelity has led me to make the hardest decision of my life. After much prayer and consultation with wise, biblically-minded people, I have decided that Art has abandoned our marriage. Yet the Lord has been so faithful to help me at every step of this way, Pain, very painful journey and has now assured me I've done all I can do. I am brokenhearted beyond what I can express, but I'm more committed than ever to trusting God, his promises and his plans, whatever they are from here. Man. So my question is, are there better moments to pray than others? Or, or certain types of prayers are certain types of prayers, is God more likely to answer certain types of prayers than others? For example, is God more likely to answer a prayer where we are seeking his mercy, grace, and forgiveness over a prayer where we are seeking comfort and rest? Or what about a prayer where we are seeking justice for the poor and outcast? Is God more likely to answer that prayer than when we are trying to figure out what decision to make? Or, or what about uh, provision, protection? How important are these prayers that we pray to God? Now, when you might think that judging and ranking prayers is a foolish thing to do, after all, who can know the mind of God? The fact is we all actually do it anyway. Just think about your prayer life. Think about the times where you have earnestly sought God. Do you always pray with the same fervor? 
<laughs> I know I don't. A couple of years ago when uh, my son Makarios was less than a year old and he began losing control of his neck, his muscles, and we had to bring him to see a neurologist, that moment, those months where we didn't know what was happening, my prayer life then was completely different than this last week when I dropped my, you know, when, when we met the teachers at my, my kids' schools and I prayed that the Lord would grant them favor in their classroom, that my children would be salt and light to their friends, to everyone there. Both prayers, but I prayed differently. Subconsciously, we've decided that certain types of prayers are more valuable to God than others. And if left unchecked, this mindset, which many of us don't actually, will, we, we would never consciously say but, but, but if left unchecked, this mindset is actually detrimental to our faith. Let's open up James chapter 5, starting from verse 13, and, and look at this subtle issue of ranking prayer, effective prayer, and, and what this has to do and, and how this affects our relationship with God. Right? So James chapter 5, starting from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, he should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Well, he should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. What do we observe here in the first two verses? All right, if you are suffering, so take a look at the verse, that, that verse 13. If you are suffering, what are we to do? What does it say? should pray, right? If we are suffering, when we are suffering, we should pray for strength to withstand the trial. We should pray for courage to keep our eyes on the Lord. We should pray for endurance to stay faithful because oftentimes when we pray, I don't know about you, but I often say, Lord, help me stop suffering. Lord, take this pain away. How can I live another day? Right? And you, you ask Lord to take the suffering away because we don't like pain. We don't like suffering. So we, so we say, I don't, know, I don't know why, Lord, but just take it away, take it away. But we read here, it says, if you're suffering, you should pray. And, and sometimes what we often actually need to pray for, not, not, Lord, help this end, but we should be praying, Lord, give me endurance to stay faithful. Because... When we are suffering, God actually wants to do a work deep in our hearts and deep in our lives. If you're suffering, we are to pray for wisdom, right? We are to pray for wisdom and ask, Lord, what have I done to contribute to this suffering? Sometimes we have done something, sometimes we haven't. Sometimes it's majority us, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's merely consequences, to our actions, and other times it's consequences to other people's actions that we are suffering. 
But when we are suffering, we are called to pray. We are called to pray and ask, Lord, may your will be done, whatever your will may be. Because sometimes when we are praying, God, may your will be done, we actually, that's masking and we're saying, Lord, may my will be done. But you do it, so may your will be done, only if it's my will. When we are suffering, we need to say, Lord, may your will be done. We need to pray and, and trust God in his timing. And we need to pray and, and, and ask God for humility and, and faithfulness and openness so that we may learn what God wants to do in us. All right, so that's the first thing that we read in this passage. Now the next one is, is anyone cheerful? Right, when we are cheerful, what are we called to do here? Sing praises, right? We are, we are called to sing praises to the one who has rescued us. We are called to sing praises to the one who has redeemed us, to the one who has given us new life, to the one who gives. Hallelujah, thank you, Lord. But also, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, when you take away. We are called to sing praises to the one who has not only created us, but who is actively sustaining us, who continually gives us breath. We are called to sing praises to the one who has created all things to the one who is actually the source of all joy. And the only reason we can truly sing praises is because he has first shown us what it means to have joy and be full of joy. Now, now what about if you're sick in verse 14? What should you do? You should call for the elders of the church, right? It says you should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over you. Now, take a look at this verse. And the beginning of verse 13, right? In, in verse 13, James says, if you are suffering, you should pray. But then in verse 14, he says, if you're sick, you should call for the elders of the church to pray for you, right? You should pray. It's different. You should pray and you should call for the elders of the church to pray for you. Why do you think James makes the differentiation here? Secondly, why is he saying that it should be the elders of the church, and lastly, in, this, in, these, in these verses here, what's up with oil? Right? What's up with that? Let, let's, let's take a look at these three questions and address them one at a time. Okay, so the first question is, why does James make the differentiation between you praying and asking others to pray for you? Well, first of all, for us to understand and experience what it means to be a follower of Christ, Right? For us to live out what it means to, to walk in faith, to, to walk with the Lord, to, to live a life that is honoring to God, to, to be a part of this great commission and, and this great commandment that we read about in the scriptures. For us to actually live that out and to experience the abundant life that we read about in the scriptures, we can't do it alone. We can't actually experience this thing called called faith and, and a relationship with Christ, we can't actually fully experience that independently on our own. That's why life groups is such an important value and, and, and aspect of life in the fellowship. We can't do it on our own. Faith is not an individual journey. Yes, there are moments where we need to lock ourselves in our prayer closet, uh, get on our knees fast and pray and come before the Lord. But there are also moments where we need to come together as a church, lay hands on one another, and pray for one another so that we may be healed. Not a trite little prayer that we lob up to God and say, I'll pray for you. Right? How many times have we done that? Oh, I'll pray for you. 
I'm sorry to hear about that. I'll pray for you. But actually, let's, let's pray. Let's pray right now. I'm going to pray for you right now. Like Aaron and her lifted up Moses' arms. We need to be praying for one another like that as well. Now, secondly, why is James saying that you should call the elders of the church to pray over you? Well, is James referring to elderly people? Now, elders may be elderly, but that is not, he's not talking about elderly, he's not talking about age. Yeah, he he is talking about the elders of the church, the leaders of the church. Yes, those who have a leadership position in the church who are who are overseers, who are caretakers, who are who are shepherds. Right? Yes, he is talking about those people. But he's not talking about a leadership position. He's not talking about people with power. He's not talking about people with privilege. He is actually if you take it back, he's saying, hey, you know what? Call people who fit the qualifications of an elder and pray for you. In other words, call people who are faith-filled to pray for you. Call people who are righteous to pray for you. Call people who are full of integrity to pray for you. Call people who, when they pray for you, they are actually believing in the Lord, that the Lord is listening, that they're praying to a living God, that it's not therapeutic prayer, I'll pray for you, and it's just supposed to make you feel better because someone's thinking about you. No, but they're actually calling on the living God. You know, in verse 17 and 18, the type of prayer that Elijah prayed, they, they have that sort of faith, and they're praying that the Lord would have his way in your life in his timing and in his way. So what's up with the oil? That's our third question, right? What's the reason for the oil? And why doesn't he say olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, peanut oil, canola oil? Why, why don't we have some specificity here? Well, we need to understand, a lot of times we kind of focus in, right? We focus in on James 5.16. If you're in a Baptist church, if you're in a Pentecostal church, you look at James 5.14. Or if you're in another, you know, it's just like we all have, or depending on your background or this or that, we all kind of just focus in and we're like, this is what I want the passage to say, which is wrong. (laughs) It's not about what I want it to say. It's about what it says, what the Lord has intended it to mean, which is why context is king, right? Context is so important. And in these verses, the context, the point of this passage is not oil. The point of this passage is prayer. The oil is a symbol. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, we read, now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us context. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. There is nothing uniquely special about the oil because the oil is not the point of this passage. The point is prayer. But to further clarify, the point is not our prayers. The point is not our faith. The point is not the elders' prayers, as if they had some unique power to heal. The point of this passage is the fact that we get to pray to a risen Christ who has experienced all healing and who wants to shower that healing upon us in his timing. That's the point of this prayer. 
That's the point of this passage. So let's, let's unpack that, okay? If we experience physical and emotional, so think about your life right now. Think about those moments, right now, you may be struggling with an illness, a physical illness, an ailment, cancer. Sure, most of us know someone who is struggling with cancer. Even for yourself, what is going on? Why are you taking the pills that you are taking? Why are you needing to go to the doctor you are going to? We all have, many of us have these physical illnesses and sicknesses that we come and we've wrestled before the Lord with. And, and some of us on a daily basis, we, we're like, Lord, heal me. And others have, you have just said, like, I guess this is, my, this is my thorn in the side like Paul. But we have these physical illnesses that we need to bring before the Lord. And, and for others, we, you, ha, you may have emotional hurt. Maybe when I read that passage, that, that, that um, not passage, the, uh, the blog post that, that Lisa Turkers wrote, maybe that, maybe that struck you because someone's been unfaithful to you or you are unfaithful to someone else. And, and there's hurt. There's relational hurt. That while you may be physically healthy, emotionally you're a wreck. And we have these. So think about that. Think about these physical illnesses, these, this emotional sickness that you may have. And now place that and look at this passage. Now think about it, okay? Think about those things. If God were to heal you today, to transform you today, to set you free today, when we read verse 15 and 16, we need to understand that you being healed and you being set free is not really the point of this passage. That's not actually the end goal. The end goal for healing is so that we can give glory to God. The end glory, the end point of healing is not so that we may feel better, but it's so that God may use the restoration that he has brought about in our life to show the world that he lives. To show the world that he is still powerful, that he is resurrected, and just like God healed you, he wants to heal them. If God chooses to heal you today, that is why. It's not for our own benefit, it's for others. Because the fact is, we're all going to die. Even if you were to be healed today, tomorrow you may get another sickness. Even if God were to wipe that away, in 10 years you might have something else. We are all going to die. Our fate is still the same. Yet, yet there are many people who read this passage and unfortunately they use it as a justification that God is going to heal their sickness, their, their, their cancer, their, their hurt, their illnesses, emotional, physical, in their timing and in the way that they want it to be done. And, and, and they say, hey, it says the prayer of faith will save, will, will save the sick person, right? The prayer of faith, the prayer of faith. So, so like, I just need more faith. Right? And if they're not physically healed, they're like, what's my deal? I guess I don't have enough faith. I guess not enough people have been praying for me. I guess there's, there's sin in my life. I guess it's something. And it's all about them. When you have this mindset that healing is for your benefit, you have this mindset that the faith is your benefit and everything is through this lens of me, me, me. So if it doesn't happen, it's like, what have I done? Well, I don't have enough faith, so I need to have more faith. It doesn't happen. What have I done? 
I guess it's my sin, so I need to confess my sins. What have I not done? What have I not done? Right? And it's all through this lens of me, me, me. But a relationship with Christ is not about me, me, me. <laughs> this passage is showing us, hey, when, when we ask the elders of the church to pray for you, it's because we're a family, we're a community, we're a church body, and it's us lifting one another's arms and praying for one another and doing what the Lord has called us to. Now, I've seen God physically heal people, right? Even to the point of this one gentleman who had cancer that was inoperable, that oncologist after oncologist would not do surgery on him. They would not perform surgery on him because it was too, there would be no point. But he kept on praying. And then there was this one surgeon in the body of Christ, we continued to pray for him and this one surgeon who was a believer said, you know, let's, let's just do the surgery anyway. And when they opened him up, the cancer was gone. Right? I've seen physical healing like that, but I've also seen physical healing where we would, without sleeping, be fasting and praying that God would touch that person and heal their life. And the next day we were by the graveside and saying, Lord, why didn't you heal that person? It's not that we had more faith here than here. It's not that we, this person had, unconfessed, uh, had confessed all their sins and this person didn't. Sometimes healing happens. Sometimes it doesn't. When Jesus said, hey, I have come to usher in the kingdom of God, but the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. That's what he's talking about. It's this idea that, hey, if when we are with Christ, there will be no more sickness, pain, illness, or death. We will be fully healed, fully restored before him. But we right now live in this place where that is not, we're not fully there. So when we look at this passage and we use it, we use it as a way to justify what we want in our timing, the way we want it to happen, that's when we actually misuse the passage. Because if God were to heal you today, you would still die. So it's not for you. So if God heals you today, it's because he wants to use that to bring him glory, to show your family around you, to show your friends, your neighbors, those who are far from God, to show them that, hey, God is still alive. And if God chooses not to heal you, he is using that to show your friends, your family, your neighbors, those who are far from God, that God is still alive. Do you see that? Now, does that mean we should sit back? Does that mean that, hey, Daniel, if I hear you correctly, you're saying God will have his way, that God is sovereign. Is that what you're saying? And, and, and if that's what you're saying, are you saying that I shouldn't even ask for prayer? Because even if I, if I don't ask for, whether I ask for prayer or not, God is still going to have his way. Is that what you're saying, that I should take a step back? And that's, no, that's not what I'm saying. 
That is not what this passage is saying. We need to seek God at all times. We need to bring our suffering and our joy, our sickness and our happiness before the Lord and before the church. But what I'm trying to say is as we seek God, right, because we see here it's, hey, is anyone among you suffering? Just sit back. Is anyone cheerful? Just eat, a, you know, eat some Doritos, right? If any, if, if, are you sick? Just, you know, go to the pool. I mean, it's not what this is saying. No, you need to still actively seek the Lord, but what is the end? The end is not your own benefit. The end is that God would receive all glory and that the lost would come to know him. So we need to understand that if God chooses to heal you, it's not for your benefit, but it's for the benefit of others. And if God chooses not to heal you, like he didn't with Paul in the scriptures, who had a thorn in his side, God wants to use that for the benefit of others so that you may learn what it means to have strength and weakness, so that you may learn what it means to persevere yet be content. Now, whether, you're, whether we are sick or healthy, whether we are in trouble or celebrating, James is calling us in this passage to confess our sins. He's saying, hey, this is something you can choose to do. You can confess your sins and lay your life and offer your life as a living sacrifice before the Lord. This is something that we can all choose to do today. We can't choose for God to heal our emotional pain. We can't choose for God to heal our physical ailments. But we can choose to confess our sins. We can choose to offer our lives as a living sacrifice before the Lord. And the beautiful thing is that when we confess our sins, when we offer our lives as a living sacrifice before the Lord, we read in verse 16, and we confess our sins before the Lord and to one another and pray for one another, it says we will experience healing. And the true root of healing, not just about physical or emotional, but true healing is a restored relationship with Jesus. Because that's what lasts. Everything else, your emotional pain will go away. Your physical pain will go away one day. But your relationship with God, whether it be restored or broken, that will not go away. True healing, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, confessing the sins that we have sinned against God and against others to one another, this results in true healing, a restored relationship with Jesus. And this is what a powerful prayer is. That is, what we, that is what this means when it says uh, the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. That power is talking about a restored relationship with Christ. So the fellowship, may we as a church together be a church that regularly confesses our sins. May we be a church that regularly confesses our sins to one another and prays for one another so that we may be healed. May we be a church that keeps short accounts with the Lord and with others. May we be a church that grows in humility and in purity before him. Because if you look at verse 17 and 18, when we live like this, verse 17 and 18, just like Elijah was a human being as we are, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. When we confess our sins 
keep short accounts before the Lord and with others, when we live in purity and humility before the Lord, when we live with integrity and offer our lives as a living sacrifice to the Lord, just like Elijah, we will experience a kind of joy and adventure in this life that we cannot experience without him. This abundant life that Jesus promises can only be experienced as we come before the Lord and confess our sins and offer our lives as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Christianity is not a straitjacket. It's actually what frees you from the straitjacket of this world. Abundant life is not found outside of Christ. It's found within Christ. And what we, what we realize here is, hey, when we confess our sins and we are righteous before the Lord and righteous... You know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Righteous, all it means, that, that word is just, all it means is right relations. So when we have a right relationship with God, when we have a right relationship with others, when we are confessing our sins before the Lord and offering our lives as a living sacrifice to him, that's when we can experience an abundant life in the Lord. That's number one. Number two is healing. Number one is intimacy with the Lord. 